0: So today I'm going to talk to you about my interviews and some of the things that I found out. And I'm going to play you some excerpts from the original audio as well. And I'll give things a bit of a Wellington spin where I can because I found out some really lovely kind of Wellington details in this research. Yay, that works, cool. (laughs) When I interviewed Dame Catherine Healy from the New Zealand Prostitutes Collective, she wasn't Dame Catherine Healy at that point, Um, that happened well, a year and a half ago, I think. Yeah, anyway, um, she wasn't yet Dame Catherine Healy. And when we were coming to the end of our interview, I asked Catherine what it was that she'd still like to see change for sex workers in New Zealand. And she said, one thing I'd like to see is the recognition of sex workers as ordinary, sometimes rather extraordinary people. And that struck me as quite profound. It seemed to me to be a really good fit with the kinds of things I'd been found, that I'd been finding out in the interviews I was already doing. And also a really good fit with oral history as a discipline. Because oral history allows you to investigate both the extraordinary and the ordinary. It allows you to ask people about big stories like the establishment of the New Zealand Prostitutes Collective, the campaign for decriminalizing sex work in New Zealand, or speaking at the Oxford Union in Catherine's case. It allows you to have interviewees tell you about having gender reassignment surgery in 1977 in Cairo, or about being given aversion therapy to try and stop them from being transgender as a young teenager. So those are extraordinary stories. They're big stories. But the great thing about oral history, of course, is that it gives you the luxury of time in which you can also investigate the domestic and the everyday. You can ask people about what they wore or what the decor was like in a massage parlour. You can ask them about their friendships and about being a parent. So it allows you to examine the details of ordinary life and to treat those as important. Oral history is sometimes described as being history from below. And I've always really liked that notion, that idea that you could could document the lives and the stories of ordinary people, not just the movers and shakers of history, not just the people whose names you might already know. And I love the fact that by sitting down with someone with an audio recorder, and listening to their story, that you can document a history that might have been missed otherwise, that might have gone untold and unheard. I think listening is a really powerful kind of a thing, and I think um, think it would be a great thing for our society if we... It might solve a lot of our problems if we listened to each other more and were able to really hear each other's stories. I want to mention the photographs that I'm showing here. Um, These are by Upper photographer Madeline Slavik. A lot of the people who are in the book are in it under just a pseudonym or a first name because there can be a cost to being out as being a sex worker or having been a sex worker. And so a lot of people didn't want to be identified. So that gave us kind of a conundrum when we came to illustrate the book. We had to think about, well, if we can't photograph people, what are we going to do? So Madeline, we ended up working with Madeline, and she took a beautiful series of shots, mainly around Wellington sites that are or have been associated with the sex industry or with sex work activism. Yeah, and um, they're a great part of the book. That is, um, I hope you can see that shot. Maybe you can't see it quite right, but it's a beautiful shot inside Funhouse Brothel in Wellington. And this this next shot, that's inside Paris Brothel in Lower Hutt. So I started doing these, these interviews with sex workers in 2009. It's gone dark, is it? It's meant to, right? So, we can, so you can see the photo's coal. <laughs> um, it ended up being quite an extended kind of a process. The book, the book came out last November, so it took me more than nine years from when I began. It was a project that had pretty small beginnings, really. When I started it, I wasn't sure what I was going to do with this material that I was collecting but I had the strong sense that there were stories out there that it would be really good to document and to tell, and some stories that might otherwise be lost, especially because the sex industry is kind of largely hidden away from public view. I wrote in the introduction to the book that the world of sex work can seem like a world apart, a secret, separate world that can only be entered by those who, as in a fairy tale, have been given the special key or know and utter a secret word. To those outside it, it can seem like a hidden, mysterious world, a shadowy kind of a place. So I had this idea that I wanted to bring some of those stories out of the shadows and into the light. I was also aware that the decriminalisation of sex work in New Zealand in 2003 had meant huge changes for sex workers, that there was kind of a whole landscape around sex work that no longer existed, and that it would be a good idea to try and document some of those stories while there were still people around who remembered how things had been. And then I wanted to allow the interviewees to speak and I wanted to amplify their voices, especially because sex workers are sometimes put in a position of not having much of a voice. Though having said that, I want to acknowledge the way that the decriminalisation of sex work in New Zealand really is an expression of sex workers' voices. That's not always the case internationally. In most cases, it's not. In many countries, the law around prostitution has been developed without any input from sex workers, with no input from the people who are most affected by it. Um, It's imposed on them against their will, and it's often quite harmful to them. So New Zealand is very different, because the Prostitution Reform Act was developed in consultation with sex workers, and so were the health and safety guidelines that the industry operates under now. That's something we can be proud of. We're still the only country that has decriminalised sex work, unfortunately, despite the real advances that it's made for sex workers in terms of human rights and well-being and safety. Internationally, there's been more of a move towards trying to get rid of the sex industry by criminalizing clients, which is, uh, that's a law change, which some people might think that it sounds good. Actually, the impact on sex workers tends to be quite harmful. It makes them less safe, subjects them to more um, surveillance, and it also pushes them into poverty. There are 11 people included in the book, and they're quite a mix of people. They're Māori and Pākehā, from middle-class and working-class backgrounds, born between the mid-1940s and the early 1980s, people who lived in different parts of New Zealand and people who've worked in different parts of the industry. So people who've worked in massage parlours, escort agencies, people who've worked on the streets or on the ships, people who've worked in high-class boutique brothels, people that have worked privately from home, As you might expect, most of the interviewees are women, three of them transgender women. And I also included one male interviewee and one transgender person who identifies as non-binary. So I'm just going to play you several audio clips to give you a bit of a sense of the diversity and richness of these voices, as well as the range of reasons that people had for doing sex work. Mistress Margaret, who's in her 70s. She was in her late 40s when she started operating as a dominatrix in Auckland. Her husband had had a serious accident and died, and she was left with a teenage son to support. She met a man who encouraged her to try dominatrix work.
1: When I first started this, I think I was about 47, and the mentor said to me, and of course I thought, what is this man talking about? He said, if you're good at this, you can be doing this when you're 70. Um... Uh, you know, if you're fit and well. And I thought, God, I'll never be doing this when I'm 70. This is a short-term sort of solution to my di- my present difficulties. But I can see, if I want to, I could be doing this at 70. I'm not going to be every client's delight, but there are people who have been coming to me for years, and we've all been getting older at the same rate, uh, who would still come, and there are some people who like older women.
0: She actually didn't quite make it to 70s. She was in her late 60s when she retired a few years ago. And um, Shayada started, started doing sex, sex work on the street in Auckland in the late 1970s when she was 14 or 15. She was transgender, and she had gone into town and seen some other trans women working in Myers Park.
2: Yeah, and that's how I met the girls wandering around wandering up the road and, you know, the bright lights and seeing all these men wanting these pretty girls that were like me and I was like, oh my gosh, I can do that too. And I could do that too, so um, yeah, I tried it and it worked. What did you do? Well, I sort of took a a, a sexy dress with me, put it in my bag and, um, yeah, changed in the toilet. And um, because I'd met a few of the girls um, prior when I'd walked up there and, um, you know, just inquiring, you know, I met them on the way, didn't know what they were doing, and they sort of, like, took me for a coffee and explained what it was. And I thought, well, that's, that, that could be something I'd like to try, so.
0: Kelly is a Maori woman who's now in her late 60s. And her marriage had broken up when she was in her 20s, leaving her as a solo mother. She and her young son moved to Surfer's Paradise, where she found it really hard to find work, perhaps because of racism at the time. And she ended up getting a job as a receptionist at first in a massage parlour there.
3: Applied for everything, everything you could possibly apply for, for an office work reception at hotels, whatever. You know, it was just so, it was five months had gone past, and I, I was running out of income, obviously. And I'm thinking, my gosh, I've got to do something. And then I remember seeing this ad in the local rag paper thingy that was there. And one of the um, ladies, a couple of the ladies I got really friendly with at the caravan park, their sons were at school with my son, it was to a massage parlour. And I said to them, I think I'll go and have a look at that. And, you know, it was that old chuckle, old laugh, oh, why not, you know. So I went and had an interview, and I remember saying to the owner, I hope you're not expecting me to do this. And he said, "No, no, 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 no. I want my receptionist to not be doing it." And I said, "Okay." So anyway, I took the job, and you understood what a massage parlor was. Yes, yes. yes. You didn't think that. it? No, no. I, I, I had known what you know by that. What it was. A... Had you had nothing to do with the sex no, industry at all before? Nothing at all. Nothing at all. And um, so I came back to the park, and I said to the ladies, "Oh, well, that's me. I'm in the, in the massage parlor in the brothel, whatever." <laughs> and there was a chuckle, you know. And I think I was. I don't know, is there a few months? And I thought, I can do this?
0: (laughs) Stevie, who was born in the early 1980s and is transgender and non-binary, they're the youngest person in the book. And they also started sex work as a solo parent after struggling to get by financially.
4: You know, when um, when you really don't have your needs met, you can feel really frantic. And sort of chaotic about how you do your life because you're always trying to get something that you need that you don't have. And especially when that's real basic stuff like housing or food. So, um, so doing sex work for me, besides being able to like pay my overdraft and have food and that sort of thing. Or, you know, like buy new blankets or, you know, just have a have clothes that don't have rips in them or didn't come from the free box outside the op shop or whatever. Um so besides how that materially is really amazing, also um, psychologically it's really amazing. So it just made me feel a lot more calm and a lot more um, like I had more say over how my day-to-day life is going. Yeah, so I think that's, that's real big stuff.
0: I was very interested in the establishment of the New Zealand Prostitutes Collective and the campaign for decriminalisation. Catherine Healy told me about how she was working in a a Wellington Massage Parlour in the later 1980s. She'd been a primary teacher, but she was a bit over being a primary teacher and looking around for something else to do. And so she got a job as a receptionist in a parlour, just a a couple of nights a week at first. She didn't actually understand that it was a front for prostitution, she thought it was just massage at first. And that, that was at number twelve, which was a parlour in Bulcott Street, in that grand old house that's on the corner of Bulcott and Willis Streets now. It's a re- it's a restaurant, it's been a restaurant for quite a while. But it was it was moved moved down the hill. It used to be further up Bulcott Street, and it was moved when the Majestic Centre was built, I think. It used to be a doctor's surgery originally. Doctor Henry Pollan <laughs> back in the day. Yeah, so um so Catherine was working there, and there was another parlour across town that had to close for a while for renovations, the Lily of the Valley. And a bunch of the women from the Lily came across and worked at Number 12 with Catherine. And they were a really tight little group, as she describes it, tight tight and quite politicised. And she kind of hooked up with them and followed them back to the Lily when it reopened. So she told me about the conversations they had in the parlour and talking about how they needed rights and how they began meeting in each other's flats, which went on and went on to set up the Collective. So there were sort of informal discussions about that stuff in the parlour?
5: Yeah, yeah. I remember, you know, like very strident people saying things like, we need rights, you know. (laughs) We need, and I was shocked myself because I'd come from a teaching background and I thought, gosh, where's our NZEI? I can't remember the point in time, but I do, you know, I I was also um, very conscious that sex work was work and, you know, it just felt fine and I felt on top of the crest of the wave, felt very strong and and empowered and happy and, um, you know, stimulated and all those things that you associate with a good job and it didn't, you know, it just felt great and felt that, um, yeah, why, you know, why isn't there a kind of an organisation? And I think also, um, critically, we met someone who could tell us about other organisations.
0: And so this led to the establishment of the Prostitutes Collective. Catherine knew someone at the Department of Health, and there was a lot of concern. It was the late 80s, and there was a lot of concern at the time about preventing the spread of HIV-AIDS. And so the department offered these women some money to to run a programme for sex workers. And when they went to look for premises, which were in Upper Cuba Street at first, they pretended that they were nurses. So, of course, sex work was criminalised at the time. The vice squad was charged with policing the sex industry indecent publications and gambling. And police officers would go out undercover, go on raids to, to entrap sex workers. Street workers, many of whom were trans, they were quite heavily policed, and they would, they would usually be picked up by an undercover police officer in a car who would wait until they mentioned a price. They would, he would talk to them until they mentioned a price and then arrest them. Shayeda talked about being entrapped on a number of occasions. She talked about being kept in a cell overnight and how she'd then be convicted and, convicted and fined, usually $100, but sometimes $200. She said to me, "'I don't know why they couldn't have picked on somebody else, a murderer. "'They harassed working girls that did nobody any harm.'" And in massage parlours, undercover police would go in and they'd have a nude massage with a nude masseuse. And then, usually a bit later, she'd be arrested for soliciting. So prostitution itself, actually exchanging sex for money, that wasn't actually illegal, but soliciting in a public place was. And under the Massage Parlours Act 1978, massage parlours were defined as public places. So in order to avoid soliciting clients, women working in parlours would give the client a massage, and then they'd try and get him to ask for sex. They'd say something like, is there anything else you'd like? Because they believed that if they didn't say it explicitly, if the client said it, they'd be immune to prosecution. So I asked Catherine if she thought that that was true, if that was really a defence, and whether any of the entrapment raids would have failed on that basis.
5: I think we were all sitting ducks, because the, the, the thing was, we were, we were sitting ducks because we were in a place, and we were, generally the massages were nude, so, you know, like just describing that and saying I'm in a darkened room, and she had no clothes on, and, you know, she was obviously offering herself to me for the purposes of prostitution, even though she didn't say anything, that would have been enough. Mm. And um, I think, you mm. know, like, no, there, there were no failed entrapment exercises. Right.
0: So all that care around how you phrase things and everything. Fell over like a feather Right. in the reality
5: of the courtroom because of the descriptions. You know, like, so the police officer stands up and reads out the charge sheet and I guess that's what it's called in the summary of facts. And off, off we go and, you know, the picture's painted. And you know this woman's faceless almost, and voiceless, and um, but nude, and nude, and you know like, and and typically um, people would plead guilty.
0: Also under the Massage Parlours Act, you weren't allowed to work in a parlour if you had a conv- conviction within the previous ten years for a prostitution-related conviction or a drug-related conviction. So, um, so these entrapment raids sometimes meant that women in parlours were forced into working in le- much less safe places, like on the street, or in escort agencies. As I mentioned, decriminalization of sex work is very rare internationally. What we have here has become known as the New Zealand model. It's a very good approach, a very humane approach, which puts people at its center, It aims to support the human rights and safety and well-being of sex workers. Rather than prioritising ideas of morality or some kind of notion of protecting society from something, (laughs) um, Yeah, some some laws seem to be mostly about protecting men. As I'm sure you know, the law in New Zealand before 2003 meant that sex workers, who are mostly women, were criminalised, but their clients, who are almost exclusively men, were not. It was basically the sexual double standard written into law. So I was interested to ask people about their experiences of being criminalised and of being decriminalised. Everybody in the book worked before 2000... Everybody in the book, except one person, worked before 2003. So they all talked about the fear of being arrested, even if it didn't actually happen to them. Catherine was, in fact, entrapped and prosecuted in a raid. Um, She was acquitted, but it was a very scary kind of a time for her. And most most people knew someone who had been who had been prosecuted, even if they hadn't themselves. And street interviews who worked on the street were often, were often entrapped on a number of occasions. Several people in the book worked both before and after decriminalisation, so it was really interesting asking them about their experiences. One of those people is Alan, who did sex work first as a teenager and then took a while off from it and chose to go back to it in his 40s. What's your impression of how decriminalisation has changed things?
6: oh i can say people feel as a worker you're so much more empowered you're way more empowered and that you can work that it is legal and it changes the energy that you're working with you're not having to work under this shadow of darkness and seediness that actually it can be done in the place of light and it doesn't have to be all dodgy and um, because it just changes the energy immediately
0: Kelly was very involved in the campaign for decriminalisation. She was very proud of her work towards law reform. And because she worked for a couple more years after the law changed, she also talked about its impact on her.
3: That whole weight had been taken off your shoulders in many ways. Like you could negotiate over the phone. You could negotiate prices over the phone. You could negotiate the fact that they did have to use condoms, that there was safe sex, you know. Prior to that, of course, people would ring up and say, do I have to use condoms? And you'd say, well, look, I'm not about to get into that discussion with you over the phone. So you couldn't, you couldn't go down those levels where you could set the boundaries over the phone. You didn't have to worry about um, an undercover cop knocking, at you, cop knocking at your door or something like that, trying to entrap you. So all of that took a huge pressure, huge pressure. And um, I just wish that the previous 20 years had been like that because you were constantly living in that little arena of fear in a funny sort of way, you know? Whereas once it was taken off you, you could conduct your business on a professional level. I, I wasn't raped in the industry. Had I have been raped, I probably wouldn't have taken that to the police. I feel damn certain had I have been raped after law reform, I would have taken it to the police.
0: The other area I found really interesting was the experiences of people from the transgender community. There are four transgender people in the book, and I'm really grateful to be able to include their stories. Especially in earlier times, things weren't easy for them. It was very difficult for them to find work, so a lot of people did sex work. Quite hard to find accommodation. People talked about even being able to do simple things like going into a shop to try on clothes and being abused by the staff members, or being harassed and abused just walking down the street. My longest ever interview was with the wonderful Dana DeMelo, a Pakeha transgender woman who was born in 1946 and who lived a very courageous kind of a life, transitioning in her mid-teens. Dana lived up the road from me, we both lived in Strathmore, and she had a lot of stories to tell. So I went up to her place week after week to keep recording her talking. She also let me take away and scan some of her rather marvellous photo album. Those are some of her photos there. Um, yeah, Dana moved from Auckland to Wellington in the early 1960s.
6: I had nowhere to live when I first came to Wellington. I lived in the railway station ladies' toilets. used to put my bag in on the day. It cost nothing to have your suitcase in the, um, in the railway station suitcase place, the baggage department, but it cost you money to leave it overnight. So I'd take it out every night at 5, 5.30, a suitcase. And I used to live in the woman's toilet and go to the night, go to the Sorrento, you know, every night and stand on the street. Oh, I think about it.
0: So after you came to Wellington, would you have been dressing as a woman all the all
6: time? All the time. Lived. And that's why I had no work, because no one would employ you. If you In those days, you had to crack it. You.
0: you I was going to ask you about that, because you, I mean, most of the trans people you knew at the time would have been. Cracked
6: the, it, yeah. Or weekend. rolled or whatever because they had to survive. What's rolled? Well, they, if they didn't, couldn't crack it, Sort of, they would um, try and get his wallet or something. That's what they call rolling. It was about survival. It was either live or die. And if you're starving, you'll do nearly anything. If you haven't eaten for a week or two.
0: Very sadly, Dana passed away from liver cancer early last year. But something else I learned from Dana and from the other trans people I interviewed, especially the older trans women, was um, how incredibly strong their communities were. It was really evident sometimes just being at Dana's place, the number of people calling her up or dropping by. And then when she was sick, the number of her old, old friends who came sometimes considerable distances to be by her side. I also interviewed Dana's very old friend Poppy, who you can see in the top the top photo with the yellow top on with the two Japanese sailors. I think that's a great photo, and really interesting photo. Um, and I asked Poppy about those communities.
6: I got 30, 40 year friendships.
0: You see, because a lot
6: of the girls were also ostracized by their own families, so we became family. We are family. We're the transgender whānau, you know. And in a lot of cases, that family, our family, the transgender family, with stronger ties and, and stronger love links and that to their own families. So, yes, we were supportive and very close.
0: All of those trans women mentioned Carmen, who was a real drawcard for trans people in Wellington. Carmen's visibility probably contributed to Wellington being a more accepting kind of a place for trans people than than other centres were. Dana had worked for Carmen briefly at the balcony as a waitress and also did a stripping spot. And um, Shaida, who's, who's a bit younger than the others, tells an amazing story about being a child and seeing Carmen on TV and how her mother, who had grown up around the Rupes and had gone to school with Carmen, commenting that she, Shayada, was going to be like that too. Shaida also talked about the Evergreen, which was the coffee bar that, and the de facto community centre run by Chrissy Witoko on Vivian Street in the 1980s with Chrissy's famous toasted sandwiches, and um, the amazing huge laminated collages of photos, which are held in Te Papa now. They're on the Te Papa website, and um, they're real taonga. They're (laughs) amazing things. Yeah. And another fascinating thing was about the households of trans women. It could be hard for them to find housing, and they they lived together in groups. There was a, a famous household world-famous in the Wellington trans community, I guess, um, in Pyrie Street in Mount Vic, and another one in Colombo Street in Newtown. Um Shieda talks about there being seven or eight people living in a two-bedroom flat, and how everybody would be doing sex work, and sometimes someone would, you know, if they brought home a client and he had some more money and she was sick of him, she might pass him on to a flatmate. <laughs> Quite a few of the trans women worked in strip clubs as, w- as well as women. In Wellington, that was at Club Exotic and the Purple Onion, on, um, both on Vivian Street. So there was this whole kind of night scene around Cuba Street and Marion Street and Vivian Street. I'll just play you a piece, a piece with Shay Ada talking about a couple of the places that people socialised. And these, like the, like the evergreen, they're places where different communities kind of came together and bumped up against one another.
2: Everybody that went to the Royal Oak went to the sunset. The Royal Oak was the, was the daylight to the evening. And the sunset was from the evening till the morning. Everybody, the same people that went, there were ship girls, trannies, seamen, gay men, gangs, gang members, lesbians. I even knew a few um, butch girls, but their partners were with the Jap sailors when the Jap sailors come in. The butch girls just, just stood around, just made sure nothing happened. You know, but their to, girlfriends
0: uh, were ship
2: girls? Yeah, but their girlfriends were ship girls, yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. yeah.
2: All sorts. Back in the 80s they coined it as, the, what do they call it? A can of worms. Which is not a very nice thing to say, eh? A can of worms. They should have just said like a fruit bowl. A fruity fruit bowl of people, you know, all different colours, shapes and sizes.
0: I think these places where people from different communities mixed are really interesting, be really interesting to look into further. All of the trans women that I interviewed had worked on the street and for some of them it was really a place where they found their community, where they found support and found out how to be themselves. Earlier I played that clip from Shayeda where she talked about meeting the trans woman working in Myers Park. Later at the end of her interview she reflected on the street scene Thinking back on your years in the sex industry, mm. what's the best thing you got from it? What was the best thing about it?
2: Friends. Yeah, friends, that's it. Um, um, life experience. Because you have to grow up really fast when you're on the street. When you're in the sex industry and on the street. Had my run-ins with Guys. Well, quite a few actually, but it comes with the territory and we all know that. Even before we go on the street, we know what kind of people are out there. We know what to expect. You know, and sometimes it used to get too much for me, so I'd go home and cry and then go back out again. Yeah, but life experience mainly, and friends. Yeah, that's where I met the people I came here to look for in the first place. And they ended up being lifetime friends.
0: And finally I'll just play you one last clip from Kelly reflecting on her life in the sex industry as well as the importance of family for her.
3: Yeah. I've never been ashamed of my journey and never been embarrassed of my journey. The only reason you hold, I think a lot of us hold back what we've done is because you're protecting family members from the stigma, from the stigma that it, that it holds. You know, I, you protect, I protect my grandchildren now. They don't know. They will know when I'm ready to tell them or their father's ready to tell them. So I think that's... It was like I said, when law reform went through, the very first person I rang when I walked out of the gallery was my son. And I simply rang him in Auckland. He was in Auckland. He was where he lives. And I, we're in Wellington. And I said, your mother's legal. Said, yes. <laughs> and he was, yes, good on you, Mum. You know, he
0: was so proud. But I was able to, to do that. So, yes, extraordinary lives, really. The lives of people who have displayed amazing levels of solidarity and resistance and strength in ways that are both great and small. And also ordinary lives, people raising their kids, maintaining friendships, socialising, running businesses, yeah, just normal, normal life often remind people that sex workers are part of our communities, that, there are, that they can be our neighbours and our friends and our work colleagues and family members. You might not know that someone is or has been a sex worker because it's still quite, it's still quite a stigmatised kind of an area, and so people often aren't that out about it. But yeah, sex workers are part of our communities, and they deserve to be treated with respect and dignity and to have human rights and not be criminalised. So and finally, I just want to acknowledge the interviewees for their amazing contribution and for allowing me to record and tell their extraordinary stories. They're, they're my heroes, really. Yeah, thank you. <laughs>